so pretty to me. Children wait in line with jars of alkaline to place at the feet of the glorious spine. All the little crimes. Welcome to the Life After Jet podcast, where we speak to members of the Jet alumni on their careers and the meandering life journey that took them to the present moment. I'm your host, Aiden Law, a former Jet myself, and in this episode, we speak to Brian Waters, Assistant Professor at Fukuoka University in the Forensic Medicine Department. Now, if you've started thinking about TV shows such as Bones, Dexter, CSI, a show which I will consistently mispronounce throughout the podcast, I don't watch it, and I'm not ashamed, because as Brian says, it's fake ass, and he's an expert. And anyway, if you like those shows, you might find this discussion interesting. Also, this episode is probably the first time I've had to give some warning about the content. Due to the nature of Brian's work, if you're not comfortable about topics regarding autopsies and bodies, you might want to skip the part around the 20-minute mark. I'm joined, of course, by my occasional co-host, David Rowling, as we discuss forensics, police work, and comparing how Japan and the U.S. work in these fields. Speak to you soon. Minions of the wind Cough and spin Rattle the cages of the invalids The cows... This is the book of Prefectural ALT from 1998 to 2000. Um, originally from North Carolina in the States. And then after I did two years on JET as an ALT, and then I went to grad school in California, and I studied uh, forensic science. So in university, I studied textile chemistry, and then while on JET, I was thinking, what do I want to do for my career? And around that time, there were shows on, on TV like X-Files and stuff like that. And so I got into, like, got interested in forensics, and so I st- I started, actually while I was in Japan, I started doing like a online course in fingerprint analysis and things like that, just things that were, sounded interested to me. And then uh, I started applying to grad schools, and then I got, I got into grad school at Cal State Los Angeles mm-hmm. in, in L.A., in uh, California. And then uh, I did a two-year master's program, what's called criminalistics, which is basically just forensic science, another name for forensic science. Uh-huh. And um, shortly after that, I, I got a job at the uh, Department of Coroner Medical Examiner in, in Los Angeles County. So basically, at that job, your main job is to do forensic toxicology on blood samples that are collected at autopsy. And then you also go to crime scenes and collect evidence. And I did that for almost eight years. And then while I was doing that, I I miss Japan, and my wife is Japanese, so I was trying to look for avenues back, and then uh, in 2011, I came back to Fukuoka and uh, got a job at Fukuoka University and the forensic medicine department mm-hmm. as an ass- assistant professor, and I've been doing that ever since. Wow. And that's it in a nutshell. Wow, that's quite a... It sounds pretty cool. And then also saying they've got inspired by X-Files to get into, into their... Yeah. That is so cool. Open? I think it is a unique uh, experience for um, people. Usually, if they're in Japan, they're in Japan to stay, or they go back to their home countries or other countries, and then they're there to stay. But 
uh, you don't hear too many people that establish a career in one place and then you know, and then come back to Japan after that. But um, so the opportunity was right, you know. So yeah, sir, I think I missed what you what you're doing now in uh, Fuku- at Fukuoka University. What is it that you teach again? Sorry. Yeah, so I'm in the forensic medicine department. Yep. In uh, the medical school at Fukuoka University, and so basically, I'm not uh, I don't have a PhD, but I do have experience in doing a lot of forensic toxicology and so the way that it works in a lot of forensic laboratories in Japan or at least forensic medicine departments is you have um, medical doctors who perform the autopsies and then you have support staff and the support staff is doing forensic toxicology or forensic DNA analysis and so um, I was just able to fit into one of those support staff positions when it came open, and so um, I can uh, work towards a PhD if I publish enough papers and do some research. But um, other than that, I'm, I'm I'm performing toxicology on blood samples and tissue samples that are collected at autopsy, and then also teaching class on forensic toxicology and forensic medicine. Can you tell me just just out of my own personal curiosity, what are some of the steps involved in DNA analysis? I know it's just it's just a term thrown around and every single cheesy crime show to, I don't know, just about, uh, you hear about it all the time on anything that TV or media pops up randomly. What is it, what's actually involved with that? I don't know if I could give you um, a brief primer on DNA uh, analysis, uh, yeah. but basically DNA is in every cell in our, in our body and it is uh, unique to each individual, meaning that it's composed of these uh, four proteins and then they they're in a certain combination, kind of like, yep. um, and every individual has like a different series of, of these four yeah. proteins. So um, DNA analysis, basically, it, it snips the DNA into sections. It analyzes the pattern, and then it compares that pattern with, say, um, another DNA sample that's found in, in the case of forensics yeah. at a crime scene or on an object or... And then if they match, that means it came from the same person. If they don't match, that means it came from two different people. Wow. That's, that's so, very, very, very basic. Well, it's very simple, but I'm just, I'm gonna, when you actually say, I'm very, since you said, well, how do you sniff the DNA? And then how do you compare it? And sorry, that's very, very interesting. I'm, I'm fresh off reading a book on biology on my bookshelf, so that's why I asked. Yeah, it's complex, and there's a lot of different uh, ways to do it. The, the way that is usually done now is, it's called a SNP uh, sequence. Oh man, going back to grad <laughs> grad school days. Um, oh, acronym can't remember anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, the way they do it is: let's say you find like a blood stain at a crime scene. Um, they'll swab the blood stain with a little cotton swab, and then um, usually the amount of, of DNA on the cotton swab is not enough, so they'll have to um, replicate it. So they'll it's called uh, PCR, and they basically take the little amount of DNA and they just multiply it so that it becomes more and more. And then, uh, they, using um, enzymes, they'll snip it into different sections and then use a, an instrument that will calculate how much of each part is in the section, and then it'll map it out on a on a graph. It's I mean I'm really really reducing it down, but oh I'm sure yeah. it. Probably there are a lot of steps in that staircase to finish it. But, right. Um, 
it's very complex. There's probably lots of various setbacks and so on of putting this exactly right. And, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I was reading something about how perhaps DNA evidence might not be the be-all and end-all. There is a there is error, and the trick is to to determine what percentage of error, because a lot of times you'll see like a DNA analyst on the stand saying there's a one in so many million chance that you know this DNA belongs to this person or this DNA doesn't belong to this person or something like it. But um, there are flaws, and the flaws that aren't necessarily with the DNA technology, it could be with the analysis. Mm. So, mm. for example, contamination is a big problem, and then also um, like understanding the statistics and being able to communicate that, and um, also uh, just people, maybe analysts that aren't as as good or as confident, maybe overestimating the statistics on the stand at, in order to kind of, you know, make the case, mm. so to speak. David, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Eden, the, the kind of the problem that I think is um, probably more to what you're speaking to is that the layperson, or in this case, it would be the, the juror, is probably more confident with their knowledge of DNA because of watching shows like CSI and mm. Forensic Files and just being, I mean, this is an actual diagnose uh, or an actual scientifically researched phenomenon called the CSI effect, which means that... People who do not have expertise in forensic science or DNA analysis or anything like that think they know what should be valid evidence and, and invalid evidence. So when they get on a jury or something like that, and let's say there is no DNA evidence, because oftentimes there's not, then they're like, well, we can't convict them because there's no DNA. And, and like, but there's all this other, this perfectly valid evidence. My wife, I think, finished a season of CSI a month or so. I should bring her in on this. Or you can play it back for her. Oh. One of the things I love about CSI is, uh, you know, they'll they'll run into one of the labs and um, they'll say, hey, do you have that DNA result? And they'll go to a machine that has nothing to do with DNA and they'll pull out this <laughs> and be like, Yes, it's a match. <laughs> Why is it coming off the GC? That's that's totally different. That's the, that's the wrong instrument. Oh, you know what? I, I just realized the next the next episode, uh, if we have it with you, Brian, would be uh, some myths that you've seen on TV you thought was true but totally are not. I mean, that would yeah. be that would be so much fun. That would be a full episode for sure. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Now it's 2017, but you're a jet 1998 to 2000. Mm -hmm. Take us back then a little bit, and you know where you're. I guess assuming watching X Files movies on your way to becoming a forensic. What was it like then, and what was your jet experience like? I think my jet was my jet experience was pretty uh, pretty normal in terms of I was uh, a prefectural ALT, so I was in high schools, and um, I had a lot of free time, which I know every situation is different, and we have to say that, but um, it wasn't my goal coming out of college to be an English teacher or to be a teacher even, and so I was, um, I always had in the back of my mind what I was going to do beyond JET, and so with a, a degree in textile chemistry, which is it's, it's kind of an unusual degree, but I went to NC State University, which has a really good textile school. And um, it's basically uh, a chemistry degree with the textile twists. So 
Um, we studied a lot of pop polymer chemistry, a lot of chemistry of dyes and color. And so um, when I was thinking how I was going to, oh, and at the time when I was graduating in the late 90s, a lot of jobs were uh, kind of moving out of the South. The South was always a big textile industry, but um, jobs were moving to Mexico. And also um, a lot of the jobs that were stable were at very small mills in very like rural towns, like in Virginia and stuff like that, which didn't appeal to me at the time. And plus, I had this this um, interest in Japan from um, having studied studied abroad as an undergrad. I kind of said, okay, we're going to put my textile chemistry degree on a shelf, and I'll I'll go to Japan and and uh, do the jet program. And then while I was on jet, I was like, okay, what am I going to, how am I going to take my chemistry degree and use it for something else? And then I was thinking initially with the textile angle um, to go into like trace evidence analysis, which is hairs and fibers and things like that, looking at them under the microscope, comparing them. And um, when I was in grad school, I, I, I did enjoy that aspect of it. But um, those jobs are kind of um, going away a little bit, meaning that they're getting of lesser and lesser importance while DNA and these other technologies are getting more and more importance. So even though I had this degree and also the experience of dealing with fibers and things like that, um, those jobs aren't just, they're not really available. And it's not like when you're going into the, the um, forensic um, industry, the forensic career field, you can pick and choose what you want to do. It's basically where the need is. Mm. So if a lab hires you and they know that you have expertise in a certain area, then maybe they'll put you in that section. But uh, ultimately, you're going to go into the section where they need help, which is you know DNA, or in my case, it was forensic toxicology, just drug chemistry or ballistics or crime scene reconstruction. There are a lot of different sections. So for example, if you go to work for a police department, like let's say LAPD, they have a big crime lab. So there's, there's forensic toxicology. So a lot of what they do is um, they're going to test like urine samples and blood samples that are taken on um, DUIs and people who are stopped for drunk driving and things like that. And then they're also going to do um, testing of uh, samples for people that are trying to get certain jobs. And, you know, maybe within maybe within the city of LA, they'll test uh, employment samples and stuff like that. And then you've got. Um, Let's see, forensic biology or forensic DNA. So they're going to be doing the DNA analysis and also blood typing. So if they find a blood stain, they're going to see if it's A, B, A, B, or O. You can tell a lot of things by typing a DNA sample. Like, for example, if the person was male or female and their, and their ethnic background, things like that. Okay, and then uh, you've got, let's say, uh, crime scene reconstruction. So a lot of times they'll go to, like, accident scenes, like car crashes and things like that, or maybe they'll go to a place where um, an arson has taken place. And, and then let's see, firearms is another big section where not only do they look at um, gun shootings, they'll test fire weapons that are found to see the markings that they make on bullets. So if they pull a bullet out of a dead body, maybe it matches the test fire from, mm. from the bullets. And then there's drug chemistry. So like if a police officer finds... Uh, a bunch of what huh. what they think is marijuana, you'll test it to make sure that it's marijuana. There's some chemical tests and some microscopic tests. And then trace evidence, which is what I was talking about earlier, where they, where you're looking at hairs and fibers under, under the uh, microscope and comparing them. And not just hairs and fibers, but paint chips and all sorts of different things. It's rare that you see someone who has a lot of experience in several different sections. 
at the most, you're going to have probably one person that is experienced in two or maybe three sections. So, for example, if you if you come in as a rookie and you have a degree in chemistry or something like that, they might put you in drug chemistry initially if they have a need for that. And then if you have an interest in something else, like let's say you have an interest in DNA, then there's a chance for you to maybe transfer to the DNA section, but you have to get retrained. And then once you're established in a certain section, you usually stay in that section for the rest of your career. If someone wanted to go in a particular field, then this is a bit of a generalization I'm making. You would have to pick the right subjects to study. That's true, but I have to say, like, when you apply to, like, a, a forensic lab, and, of course, it's different for each lab. So, like, on the East Coast, the way they post the job offers are, for example, if they want a forensic chemist, they will post for a, a forensic chemist. But in on the, on the West Coast, for some reason, they go for more of a generalist approach. So if mm-hmm. when they post for a forensic job, it'll usually say forensic scientist or criminalist. For example, when I'm from originally from North Carolina, so I was interested in looking for jobs in North Carolina. North Carolina uh, forensic jobs are usually through the State Bureau of Investigation, kind of like the FBI, but on a state level. And their jobs, when they have an opening at a certain section, they'll post the job for that section specifically. So if it's a if it's a position within the forensic DNA unit, then they'll post it. Mm-hmm. They're looking for a forensic biologist. So they're looking for candidates that have those kind of expertise. But on the West Coast, like, for example, LAPD or L.A. County Sheriff or the coroner's office where I worked, they're just looking for someone who has a a science background. Mm. And then then ultimately when you get in, they will train you to what you're supposed to know for each section. Okay. I was wondering what the job market would be like if you decide to go to the job field that, you, that you, you, you were working in. But it sounds like, at least in America, it depends on where you are. It's true, but um, at the time, especially when I was going into the field, and this was like when I started applying for jobs, it was more like 2001, 2002, after a few years of grad school. So the, the shows like CSI were firmly established and were starting to become very popular. So when there was a job opening, like at LAPD, which is a big lab that pays well, There'd be one position, and it'd be like 300 applicants. Oh no! So it was so it was very very competitive. You had to sit you had to sit a test. You had you had to take a test, and then based on the the score of your test, kind of like jet, based on the score of your initial test, which would be like kind of the application part, then you would get an interview, hmm. and then and the interview is a, is a very technical interview. They ask you specific chem, chemistry and biology related questions. When I started applying for jobs, I was applying for all the usual suspects, LAPD, LA Sheriff, the California State Lab, Riverside, all these the surrounding areas, and then the coroner's office. And I knew that if I got the job at the coroner's office, I would be there would be autopsies, there would be dead bodies, I would have to see dead bodies, not something I was really excited Yeah, I was really excited about or anything like that. And forensic toxicology, which is now my, my profession, and and I have um, a lot of knowledge in that area. At the time, I had no like experience in that, no knowledge of it, no no real like understanding of what it required. Mm. But I knew that if I got the job at the coroner's office, that's that's what I would be doing. And you just take you basically just take whatever job you're offered because there's so few and they're so coveted.
Me again. Before you get too far, here's your 20-minute mark. Content advisory warning that we're getting into some potentially uncomfortable topics to discussion, as mentioned at the beginning of this episode. If not, carry on as you were. You mentioned you knew that part of the job in description may involve working with a deceased. Uh, how does one prepare mentally? Um, what sort of training would be involved if they, do, if they do give you any kind of training? It's kind of baptism by fire. You, my, um, the first day uh, on the job, um, I was given a tour of the facility, and then they just, you turn a corner, and like, okay, this is the autopsy room, and there's five dead bodies that are in the process of being autopsied that open on the table, like, like hunks of meat. Either you can handle it, or you can't. You know, that's a real thing. Like, some people, they, they can't take it, and they quit immediately. So is there a group of you that they take through, or just one by one? Well, at the time I entered, I was the only one. That right. Was, so, uh, yeah. Um, it was just me at that time. But um, now it, it's nothing to me, and I see dead bodies regularly, and even the most disgusting decomposed um, body is kind of like, I know how to, I have learned how to compartmentalize my brain to where, okay, this is, this is what I need to know about this for my job. And then, and so it's something that you kind of build up an immunity to. Mm. Um, but that first day was, it was, it was very shocking and even more shocking than the open slab of meat that I saw on the, on the, uh, on the autopsy table was when I was leaving the um, autopsy room, they were prepping the next um, body for autopsy and so there was a I think she was like 9 or 13 year old girl ready to be autopsy next that was even more shocking almost you know so and then like I say you, you learn very quickly if okay this is something I can handle this is something I can I can my brain can can fix itself or some people they just they can't handle it it's too emotionally mm. just tough for them and so they either quit or they try and do it for a while and eventually end up quitting. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not for everyone, for sure. For sure yeah. but, uh, I'm sure a strong background in, in science, like either chemistry or biology, kind of almost naturally predisposes you to, not, how do I say, not be indifferent, but at least learn to accept kind of bodies and so on. It's just kind of a natural part of life. But, yeah, the, the interesting thing is um, I work in a medical school, and 100% of the students in the medical school are going to be eventually they have to take you know they have to take anatomy they have to take forensic medicine so they're going to see uh they're going to see dead bodies and they're going to have to touch them and handle them and yep. some people really are like very squeamish or even just pictures when i show pictures sometimes uh, um and these are you know these of course it, you can't blame them the 19 20 year olds but they you know, they, they see the pictures and they, they shy away or they turn their head or something like this. And, you mm. know, if they're going to be working in, a, in an emergency room or something like that, you're going to see something very, you know, far worse than this. And it's going to be right in front of you. Mm. So yeah. you better get used to it now type of thing. But. Working for, um, in particular, the Los Angeles um, coroner for eight years, did you say? Yeah, almost eight years, seven and a half years. Yes. Yeah. Not going into specifics or maybe going into specifics. Like, you probably... 
seen some pretty shocking um, incidents, and I'm assuming you've probably had to testify also in court, or is that more of Ted Porter's job? Nope, that's, I've had to testify uh, many times, and yeah. um, I have seen, yeah, I have seen some pretty shocking things. I mean, people often ask me what's the most disgusting thing that I've seen, and it all kind of meshes together. There's nothing really that, you know, that that I can think of that's like, oh, this is by far the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you see all types of things, like car accidents are very jarring because they just mm-hmm. get mangled and, and skulls yeah. crushed and things like that. If you see something like a, a, a beheaded body or something like that, that is disturbing because you emotionally have to reconcile that Someone yeah. took a knife and cut off another human's head. In, in terms of going to a crime scene and being able to do your job, you have to quickly put that aside and say, okay, what do I need in terms of collecting evidence here or documenting the scene? Mm. Okay, so do they take you to the actual scene most of the time, students? Well, not most of the time, but um, there are certain cases where um, there's a lot of evidence that needs to be collected because it is a murder or it is something that um, where eventually, if it gets to the um, to the judicial phase, there's going to have to be an expert that's going to talk about the the scene and how it was documented and the, and everything like that. So in those cases, the a, a criminalist will often be called because not because we are experts in being able to understand what's going on, but but we are experts in being able to recognize what evidence. Is important yeah. and how to document it and how to collect it and package it. And so, and the, and the thing that's unique about uh, the American uh, system is that they purposely separate the police department from the coroner's office. So there's kind of a check and a balance there. Mm. And in Japan, it's, it's all the police. Everything goes to the police. Um, so we don't like we perform autopsies for, on behalf of the police department, yeah. but uh, very rarely. Uh, I've never been to a crime scene in Japan, and um, even my colleagues um, sometimes they will go to a scene if they're if they're requested to, but it, it is all uh, up to the authority of the police department. So the police department controls everything. That changes change, tips the scales of justice in different directions. I'm sure. Then. Yeah. Mm. Well, yes, if you if you have any kind of distrust in the Japanese police. Then yes, it would for sure. But um, <laughs> in America, they eliminate that because there's there's two agencies. Well, they don't eliminate it, but they make it a little bit more fair. But in Japan, yeah, if you if you have any doubts, um, us too bad because police controls controls everything in that terms. So that means they collect the evidence, they bag it, and then they hand it over to you. Even if they hand it over to us, I mean. Uh, oftentimes they will bring, like, let's say the clothing the person was wearing, or if there was like a, a weapon or something, they'll bring it with them to the autopsy, and um, you know maybe we'll take a, a picture of it or something like that. But ultimately, and I've been doing, and I've been here for um, coming up six years now. I haven't seen anything where they've left, like uh, let's say a weapon or something. In our possession, where where the the medical examiner can take a look at it and compare it with the wounds after mm. the fact. As a matter of fact, after the autopsy, the body is is returned to the police, and all we have is the doctor's notes, which are meticulous, 
and photographs that we've taken um, in the autopsy room, and then samples for toxicology. But other than that, nothing really is left by the police department. So, but you know, even though I'm saying this, um, the police are very uh, good at listening to the medical examiners that perform the autopsy and trusting their expertise. So it's not like they're saying, oh, we, we think it's a suicide, and the doctor's saying, no, this is obviously a homicide, and the police like, no, 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 it's a suicide. I've never seen that. I've never seen any kind of disagreement. Is the coroner's office been more quiet for crime-related bodies in Japan than it would be in Los Angeles? It's like you can't make it yes. NCIS Japan, for example. Well, let me just um, kind of put it into a little bit of perspective, because Fukuoka is, is a relatively large city for Japan, a million and a half people, five million people in the prefecture. And so um, now Los Angeles City is, is three million and Los Angeles County is 10 million. But in Los Angeles County, so double the population of Fukuoka Prefecture, let's say, in Los Angeles County from year to year, there's about uh, 10,000 corner cases in one year. Okay. So not all of those are autopsy, but let's just let's say 80% of them are autopsy, and about maybe 60% of them have toxicology associated with them. So we're talking about 8,000 bodies that are autopsied in one calendar year at the coroner's office in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. compared with our university, which is one of four universities in Fukuoka Prefecture that does autopsies for the police. Last year, we had calendar year 20. 16 we had um less than 90 wow less than 90 autopsies i just had to do the math so as in la that have been 22 bodies in a day just about yeah yes so so our, our department has um one professor that can do autopsies by himself and then another professor that's that's studying abroad so he'll come back this year so that's two and um corner's office in la has 25 Medical deputy medical examiners that perform autopsies. Is that an unusual thing that universities are actually involved in police cases like this in Japan? Because I, I I don't think it that happens in the Western society in, in Western world. No, sorry. It, yeah. That's a it's a good question, um, and and it is not uh, unusual for Japan. As a matter of fact, um, every prefecture in Japan has uh, medical schools, and every many medical schools have uh, departments of forensic medicine or departments of legal medicine and the police departments in those prefectures uh, ask those medical departments to perform autopsies for them um, 100 percent of mm. prefectures now there are medical examiners offices uh, in japan but they are are few uh, tokyo has one um, i think there's one in kansai area um, there may be one in the in Nagoya area. I'm not sure. Fukuoka does not have one, and so in those cases, like for example, the Tokyo Medical Examiner's Office um, performs autopsies uh, for the police department, and that is their only job. They don't. They're not affiliated with the university or anything like that. So, um, research and teaching students is not necessarily part of their routine, but. Um, in the universities, of course, the professors in forensic medicine universities wear a lot of hats. They have to teach class, they have to perform these autopsies, they have other duties. So, yeah, yeah they, it can get quite busy for them. And we're talking about autopsies 
the number of reasons why an autopsy would be performed is because the cause of death is is either um, unknown or it's a sudden or unusual death. Uh, murders, of course, in um, America, or at least in Los Angeles, uh, the percentage of bodies that are autopsied, percentage of deaths that are autopsied, is almost three times higher than in Japan. Mm. The huh. Japanese, the country as a whole, the, the autopsy rate, last uh, figures that I heard, was about 10%, which is very low. Hmm. Huh. I why that is. Well, there's a number of factors. One is because uh, there's not enough people to perform them. So yeah. the number of forensic medicine doctors is just very low because uh, there's just not a lot of money going into that. And then a lot of the decision-making of whether or not something would be autopsied or not is made by the police. And then, of course, if the police are going to autopsy the body, they have to pay for it. Oh. Uh, yeah. So, Interesting. Yeah, so is the main answer right there. And, and this, this isn't a condemnation of the police department. I mean, they have to do what they have to do. My professor and a lot of professors in the forensic medicine departments around Japan have been pushing uh, very uh, hard for more autopsies, more autopsies. But um, yeah, if it's just there's just not enough doctors, and so you will, they would quickly become overwhelmed with the work that they have to do and. And that's why like, uh, the universities get involved. Uh, so a teaching facility, obviously they're experts, and they get involved with police work, and that's what, yeah, so that's why, right. Yeah. Oh, that's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah so, it, and I think the Japanese system is based more like on a European system. Like, I think um, Germany is, is, is a similar way where the police ask the medical universities to perform autopsies for them. So the American system certainly isn't based on that, but um, the American system has a lot of flaws as well. I mean, yeah. there, there are some counties in America that have a coroner who is not a medical doctor. He's the sheriff, mm. or he may just be someone who was elected to, to the position of coroner and may have no medical knowledge at all. Oh, are you kidding me? No, I'm not. So in that sense, you really just involve taking some pictures and, you know, doing yeah. a little this and that and calling it, you know, forensic evidence, really. Yeah. There's, a, there's a good scene in the movie, um, The Silence, Silence of the Lambs, where, if you remember, uh, I think it's one of the first bodies that they find, they kind of drag it out of the river, and so they've got it in, in this small sheriff's office, and there's, like, all these sheriff's deputies, like, standing around. Mm. And then Agent Starling's like, okay, thank you, we've got it, you guys go on home now. I imagine a lot of uh, coroner's offices in very rural areas in the, in the United States are kind of like that, where there's just a bunch of sheriff's deputies, and huh. maybe there might be one one person with a medical degree or someone from a local hospital or something that knows a little bit, but um, even, I'm not saying, I'm not saying Japan is all that great. I mean, there are forensic medicine departments in Japanese universities that are not as good as others, you know what I mean? So, mm. so it happens everywhere. Just to scratch some other curious itches, I guess we said LA had around 8,000 or so um, autopsies every year, and I assume you record all the data for what cause of death year on, year out, is that correct? Yeah, of course, yes. Yeah, people, and they're kind of like some interesting trends, like, you know, there's a 
surprising portion of people that this is they have this as their cause of death or this time of year, you know, or what time of year are there more autopsies than another, or do there some interesting patterns you notice there over time? Well, I'm not sure about like um, trends uh, across the country, but I just from from being in our department for six years, there there are certain there are certainly trends, and I would say a large percentage of the autopsies we do are on elderly people who maybe they are not. Um, at an age where they, where it would be just normal for them to die, you know, a lot of times it, it, it does turn out to be a natural death or to be a, a disaster death from some some kind of um, undiagnosed disease. But in the summer months, when it gets hot and people go out and they're hiking and stuff, there are a lot of a lot more decomposed bodies found in in different places and even just in people's houses like if they live alone and they're older and there's no one to really look after them and care for mm. them there are a lot of those cases uh, homicides is really only like a handful that we see uh, every year which is really good I mean it, it tells you something about um, Japanese society I think but you know there are horrible cases cases of child abuse and elder abuse and things like that that we see you know, when it becomes cold in the winter months, you do see um, cases of um, elderly people who die of exposure because they they forget to turn the heat on or, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. You see heater on for too long. I don't know. That was always something that said Nagano happened a lot. Well, fires, you know, when it becomes colder, um, there are more fires. Kerosene heaters are still used a lot here, so... Um, yeah, they don't know how to use them, or a lot of times they'll hang their they'll hang their laundry up above the <laughs> yep. heater. Yeah, see that, and then just forget to turn it off, and then so yeah, there are these these little these cases that you see over and over again, where um, usually it depends on the season. But you know, in terms of like you know, Japan is known for this or that. Well, as a toxicologist, we are starting to see more and more prescription medications um, in. Not not as causes of death necessarily, but just in the in the cases as we do our routine toxicological screening, and so um, uh, like right now, I mean it's an epidemic in in America, people dying of of prescription overdose. Um, fentanyl is a big one, even a lot of benzodiazepines. But um, but in Japan, uh, typically the most abused illegal drug is methamphetamine. And yeah. that still remains the case. Hmm. Um, I've never, I, I've seen one case that had cocaine in it in six years. Whereas in in LA, I would see uh, fifty in a month. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow. I, I've never, I've never had a case positive for marijuana. Whereas in in LA, it was. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was like fifty in a week. Yeah, yeah. So, LA. It's probably even more now since it's legal. I don't even know. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they still test for it. But this is just a random thought. But um, do you do autopsies on suicides? Um, in in LA, we we did autopsies on suicides because it's any unexpected death. But um, in yeah. in Japan, again, it's at the discretion of the police department. So yeah. if there is something that is slightly suspicious, then you would do it. Mm. Then we would do it. Or if, like, of course, if it's a suicide by, like, uh, overdosing or something like that, yeah. then, we definitely, then we would definitely do the autopsy because you have to find out what exactly they, they were taking. Yeah. There's a big misconception in the States, but I, certainly now that 
the rate said the suicide rate is almost double the homicide rate in the United States. Is it, did you notice that true as a coroner or just out of curiosity? Very... No, I'm not sure what the numbers are. I don't think that L.A. County, uh, the official number, at least at the coroner's office, um, I don't think suicides were double homicides. Yeah, because for a total from the United States, it's, it's yeah. significantly larger, the suicide rate's almost double. Yeah. I think I think suicide rates in Japan are um, comparatively high per population. Yes, with, yeah. Um, with the rest of the world, but I, but I think... It's not yeah, it's the highest, yeah. Yeah, I, but I do think that it's kind of a, it's a, it's a, a difficult statistic to uh, really understand because um, I think people assume that uh, a high suicide rate means that um, that means that there is a low quality of life or a uh, kind of a everyone's walking around in a depressed state or something like that. I don't really find that that's the case. I think um, I think it could be something where suicide is uh, I wouldn't say more acceptable, but just um, there's not as much of a, a a negative stigma on it in Japan that there is in the United States or other yeah. places. Yeah. But like I said, we don't see every like suicide, and yeah. so and then it's probably underreported. I would. I would think. Yeah. Like I, I don't think the, the Japanese government wants people thinking that Japanese people are killing themselves at a large rate. But um, yeah, yeah it, it's a it's a difficult question. It's one of those questions that are, people are are constantly debating. And I don't know if you can disclose this information, but you mentioned before that police have to pay for each autopsy. Just how much? Uh -huh. How much is the cost? A lot. I don't know. If I, <laughs> if, I knew, if I knew the answer, I would tell you, but I, I'm kind of, that's kind of above my pay grade to know exactly what the, the police department are paying for autopsy. I, I can tell you that, like, sometimes we are um, asked to perform toxicology tests from mm. cases that aren't ours, like other universities or uh, maybe the police department will ask us to do a toxicology test on something that we did an autopsy. Mm -hmm. And um, usually it's it's negotiable, but typically it'd be like Ichiman yen per mm. result. And so if you've got like, for example, if, if you have blood and urine and then you're asked to do alcohol analysis and a general screening and then maybe a quantification on, on, a, on a case, then that would be like four or five mon for that, four uh -huh. or five, 40 or 50,000 yen for that, which isn't very much actually. It's not it's not incredibly busy in terms of doing routine toxicology like it was in, in LA. There were ten of us in the lab in LA, toxicologists working um, full time, and uh, yeah, we were busy. Like I said, like I was in charge of doing um, THC analysis, so marijuana analysis, <laughs> and uh, I would I would literally have forty or fifty samples to quantitate in one week. Like, uh, I, I had to change from, from this fascinating topic, but uh, I suppose I should ask the other questions about uh, more related to career. So, oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. This is what this podcast that's why is about. I'm, that's why I'm on this yeah. <laughs> um, How did you arrive at your decision about what to do next? You know, it was just one of those things where I couldn't see myself being like an English teacher for... For the rest of my career, so and I, you know, I had this science degree that I wanted to use. So I was just kind of looking 
for ways to flip this, the degree into an interesting career. And, you know, like I said, it just happened to be X-Files that I was watching at the time, but um, it could have been anything that said, oh, you know what, if I have... And then you just, you, you get this little spark and then you start searching for, you know, oh, yeah, a chemistry degree is kind of the... A bachelor's degree in a science is kind of the, the entry um, entry level degree that's required. And so, and then at the time when it was getting a little more popular, a lot of people were getting uh, advanced degrees, master's degrees. And so um, I decided to go into the master's program. And there, at the time, there weren't very many master's programs in um, the United States uh, for, for, for forensics. Probably the most famous... One is, was in, in John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. There was also um, some established programs at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, Virginia Commonwealth, George Washington University, and things like that. But uh, on the West Coast, there was only uh, UC Davis and um, Cal State LA, and not, I don't think there was National University, I think, in, in San Diego. And so um, I was just kind of uh, researching the different programs to see uh, what I think I could get into and what would be interesting and, and a nice place to live. So yeah, L.A. was, I'd never lived on the West Coast before, and, and so um, Cal State L.A. was what I decided. And then in terms of uh, how I ultimately came to the decision, and I, and I enjoyed my time on JET, and you know, hindsight being 2020, I, I wish I would have stayed you know, a third year and maybe even longer, <laughs> but it, it, turned, it worked out. It worked out, I guess. I stayed like five, so... <laughs> <laughs> I only stayed one, but then, you know, I was in Fukushima doing 2011, so my firm, my, my partner wasn't too happy about me staying much longer than that. Uh-huh. <laughs> when did you decide you wanted to, because you said you worked in L.A. For, for eight years, and, you know, if that was eight years, and you would have processed um, over, you know, what, 60, over 60,000 some autopsies yourself in those times. At what point did you decide you wanted to go back to Japan? It was almost immediate that I wanted to return to Japan, which is... <laughs> This is, this is weird. Well, one part one part of the reason is because uh, my wife is Japanese. We were we were engaged at the time, so I was mm. we were having a long distance relationship. She came to to live with me in California halfway through my graduate program. We didn't have very much money, and it was kind of a tough life. And 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 so almost immediately, I started looking for ways to go back. As you guys know, uh, once you get comfortable, it kind of like it's it's difficult to make a move and you know we got married and then we had kids and it was kind of like pretty close to the time where we're gonna have to just give up our dream of moving back to japan but um almost from the from the get-go i was trying to to reach out and um and just get information and do some networking with people in the forensic field that area in Japan, and it wasn't like I was targeting certain people or certain kind of um, areas. It would be impossible for me to come here and work in the police force because I'm not a Japanese citizen. But um, you know, just by kind of asking questions and then using contacts and using colleagues and stuff like that, I was able to get meetings with certain university professors here in Japan, in Tokyo, for example, and just you know talk with them. And and it was basically I was kind of using my not my status, because I didn't really have status, but just I was a 
forensic scientist at the L.A. coroner's office, one of the biggest coroner's offices in the world. Kind of keep asking around. So when I when, when you have a business card that says, you know, Brian Waters, senior criminalist, Los Angeles County Coroner's Office, you can kind of use that and say, hey, I know you don't know me, but um, I work here and uh, I was interested in taking a tour of your laboratory mm. and, maybe, and maybe I could give presentation to your staff about what we do and, and so I did that I don't know if you guys know um, the name Thomas Noguchi have you ever heard of that name okay um, basically he was he's a Japanese man who was um, the chief medical examiner at the coroner's office back in the 60s and 70s and he did a lot of famous autopsies like he autopsied Marilyn Monroe she died mm. and um, he did Robert F. Kennedy when he was assassinated in L.A. He was kind of controversial because he used the media a lot to, you know, give details about um, about these autopsies and stuff. So um, he had some clashes with with the law enforcement and kind of left on not so good relationship with them. But he is a legend in forensic circles, and he's still alive and still teaching. Uh, forensic medicine at uh, University of Southern California, oh, okay. and uh, and I mean he's Japanese, so everyone involved in legal medicine here in Japan knows him. And uh, he would come by the coroner's office while I was working there, and he would he had a good relationship with the then chief medical examiner, and so I would see him in the hall. I talked to Dr. Noguchi, and just asked him, "Do you know anyone that you could introduce me to?" who works at university or something over there. So he introduced me to this doctor at Nippon Medical School in Tokyo. And I went and visited him, gave a presentation. And basically it was, it was just a series of these little trips to these places where I would just say, I wouldn't say specifically like, oh, please give me a job. I would just be like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm married. I've, I've lived in Japan before. I speak a little Japanese. My wife is Japanese. I'm half Japanese. Um, you know, I've got this experience, you know, if, uh, if you, if any opportunities or anything interesting comes up, just let me know that type of thing. And eventually I got a meeting with uh, the professor at Fukuoka University. And, um, again, same kind of, same kind of deal. I gave a presentation, told him what my situation was and said, you know, if, if any opportunities come up, please let me know. And then just out of the blue, one day I got an email that said, would you like to come? work with us here at Fukuoka University starting next year and I was you know I showed my wife the email and was just like this is it this is our this is our chance and that was probably like we were right probably at the point where we were just going to give up on the mm. thought of moving to Japan okay. and then we made it happen that was 2011 Okay. It was right after the uh, earthquake. Yeah, I imagine like quite a lot of people were, were saying to you, are you yeah. sure you want to move back? This like the nuclear power plant has exploded, etc., etc. You don't know the geography of Japan too outside of <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Uh, so immediately we got, because of course we had told people we were moving since, you know, the beginning of the year. And uh, as soon as the, the uh, big... Uh, tragedy happened like everyone was, are you still gonna go and, and you shouldn't go like there's radiation and stuff and I was like well Fukuoka's pretty far from where from where it happens and stuff like that so mm. I think we're safe and all that kind of stuff yeah even to this day I get people like on Facebook that was like were you near that thing and I was just, no 
Okay. <laughs> we, we weren't even living there at the time. Yeah. <laughs> what would your advice be to people coming off the debt program wanting to take a step into forensic uh, medicine? Basically, um, my advice for people on the JET program is use your time wisely. And if you have an interest in forensics, forensic science is a really good field. I think it pays well. It's very rewarding. And there are a lot of different, like I said, talking about all the different sections, there are a lot of avenues that you can go. But the, the bare minimum is that you have a, a good, solid base in science. So a chemistry degree, a biology degree, biochemistry, things like that. And then there are a lot of labs in the United States, and there are a lot of places that have need. So just kind of be open-minded, be able, be willing to relocate. Don't give up because, like, uh, there are so many people who they take one interview and then they don't get it because they don't have any any experience or they didn't interview well because they don't they didn't know what to expect, and then they give up. But then. Once you interview a few times, you get the hang of it. You know what kind of questions to expect. And then once you get your foot in the door, it's pretty good. I mean, you're, you're trained really well. And then once you have training, you're really an asset because they put some time and some effort into you. So, mm -hmm. so you can flip that into a really rewarding career. So, and, I, and I would say this about any career or any kind of field you're thinking about going into is volunteer like volunteer time like a lot of pla a lot of places even crime labs have volunteer positions I, I was a volunteer at la sheriff's in the firearms section cataloging guns so it was fun they have thousands of guns there they have guns that have been collected at crimes and stuff like that and they have it for reference and so we literally were just taking each gun and, and writing down serial numbers and model numbers and stuff like that and there's tons of places where you can get experience you may not get paid, but you're, you know, you're building your career. So when I was in grad school, the local criminalistics conference group, California Association of Criminalistics, they would have a, a conference every year and they would need volunteers for the conference to work the registration desk or hand out registration bags or anything, just stuff like mm. that. Meet a lot of people. Experience and networking, yeah. Yeah, mm. exactly. Next thing you know, you're interviewing, and one of the people that you met at the conference is, is interviewing you, and you have a rapport with them, or, oh, I remember you from such and such a conference. And, I mean, these, these things aren't unique to forensics at all. These are, you know, career tactics, strategy. That yeah. Mm. I, I would say, as someone who has um, tried the old send-out job application, you know, call up and follow up and hope breaks through certainly in this in this new modern world especially of algorithm based hiring where they filter out your job application with snaps of fingers that's more and more if not most important the most important way to step into a career i think is just you know networking volunteering meeting people and developing relationships with them yeah absolutely and it's so true in japan it is so true like i don't know of anyone but like foreigners living here that have jobs where I say, how did you get that job? And they don't say, oh, I knew someone. <laughs> they they gave me a, gave a good word or something like that. You know, like especially English teaching jobs, like in universities and stuff. Yeah. It's always like, uh, oh, this one guy was leaving, going back to his home country, so he needs someone to come in and step into his role. And so mm -hmm. I knew him. So blah blah blah. That happens so much. Yeah, yeah. everywhere. Yeah. I'm wondering how the application for a university job was, and what um, insight you could give to anyone maybe considering applying for a university position in Japan. Well, I think it, 
it's different from university to university, but ultimately there is kind of a, a standardized resume form that people have in Japan. It basically lists, you know, your education, your, your employment history, oh, handwritten. Yes. Oh yes. God. Handwritten. <laughs> and, um, there's usually your photo attached to it as well, which is, Oh God, again, which is weird. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it is an archaic system. I'm not sure. Maybe it's being done away with in certain places, but yeah, I had I had to do it. <laughs> I mean, and it's not like um, uh, it, it wasn't like I was being sought after, and therefore I could I could do something like say, well, that's weird. I'm not going to do that. It's it's just like, oh, I guess I have to do that that type of thing. So yeah, um, and everything I was in Japanese. I, I tried to write in the best kanji that I could and things like that. Of course, this was a unique position and a, a unique job and probably not one that any other foreigner has in Japan, I would think. The interview process was basically, um, I had already done it. It was the networking thing where visiting and giving a presentation and talking with the professor. And Before I was actually officially offered the position, he said, could you please come back to Japan and meet with our staff one last time to kind of finalize everything. And I guess that was really kind of like the job interview type of thing where I just kind of went and they showed me around the, the university and where I would be doing my experiments and stuff like that. And then, you know, we all went out to dinner and that was kind of like, can, can this guy get along with mm. his colleagues type of, type of thing? Yeah. So, but I think that was more of a formality. I think it was already in the bag at that point. The thing about university positions is it's very important to have published papers. And at the time, I, I didn't have any published papers because at the coroner's office, we don't really do research or anything. Like that. Mm. It's just basically you're doing an analysis and writing reports and stuff. All I had was my master's thesis that I could say was a published paper because technically it is published in the library at Cal State LA. So that was kind of a kind of a thing that they kind of overlooked, I guess. Mm. And um, at the time, it was okay for people coming into positions that I was applying for not to have their PhD, but I think they're getting uh, more and more strict about that. Like before you're allowed to have a, at least an assistant professor or higher level job at university, you have to have a PhD. It was kind of an understanding that when I came in, I would start working towards a PhD, which I've been doing, but um, it's taking longer than, <laughs> than my, my boss is, is comfortable with. It's like, no, oh, we need to get on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Working on it. Working on it. Great topic. I hope you found that fascinating. We wish Brian Godspeed on completing his thesis. Brian can be found on LinkedIn, see the footnotes for the link, and you can also follow him on Twitter at My2Yen and ask him about science, forensic medicine, or how many more ways CSI has gotten things terribly, terribly wrong. If you have a story to share, or if you have feedback, suggestions, etc., get in touch by emailing info at jetaansw.org. That's I-N-F-O at J-E-T-A-A-N-S-W.org. Music for this episode is Little Crimes by Quasar What What? See footnotes for the link. See you next time. Bye-bye.